Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, well, as usual, but dancing this time, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there! I just looked up, and there he was doing that, that getting, thing. Getting my getting my energy up. Actually, one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we start the, the episode off pretty traditionally, and one of the things that uh, we had as an early ritual as we recorded tech stuff was Jonathan and I would be sitting here in the virtual darkness, and someone... We had different engineers over the t- over the years now, but uh, someone would come in and turn on the lights. Yes, and, and usually we would both would... go. <laughs> the light it burns. But uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about light, uh, specifically light bulbs today. So what a brilliant idea those were! You know, before <laughs> light bulbs, I see what you did there. Before light bulbs, there was no way to indicate that you had an idea. Yeah, yeah there's yeah, no, there's it no. It just doesn't ting. work. Yeah. yeah. Pre-light bulb, there was no ting. Before we get into uh, how light bulbs work and their history and everything, I want to lay down a little physics for you. All right. Go ahead and enlighten us. I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we are talking about light. And what is light? Well, light is made up of these very tiny particle-like packets called photons. They've got energy. They they have momentum. But there's one thing they do not have. Charge accounts? Mass. Oh. Or I was going – they have no mass but not no moss. <laughs> Photons are these packets of energy. They have momentum but not mass. And these particles, these, these photons are uh, emitted by atoms once you have excited an atom to the point where its electron starts to move out of its normal orbit – and goes into a, a further orbit from the atom's nucleus. And once once you remove the energy source from that atom, the electron will eventually return to its normal orbit around the nucleus, but it has to uh it has to get rid of that energy that you have pushed into it, right? Energy is not created or destroyed, it's just transferred. So this electron as it's coming back down to its normal orbital is going to shed off uh energy. And in this case, the energy is in the form of photons. Now, photons are going to be emitted in the entire spectrum of light. Now, humans, we are capable of perceiving a narrow band of that spectrum. True enough. Called the visible spectrum because it's visible to us. Oh, I always wondered about that. This is where the whole Roy G. Biv thing comes in, right? The right. different wavelengths of light dictate what the color is as we perceive it. Uh, the uh, But the, the light goes well beyond outside the, the visible range. There's things like ultraviolet and infrared, and then you get into electromagnetic radiation as you go further out. But and in, uh, anyway, uh, these photons can come into uh, various... Form. So you could have a infrared photon or ultraviolet photon. So uh, if it's in the visible light spectrum, we're able to see it. Now, that's important because that's the whole basis of creating a light bulb is you want to create some sort of device that you can uh, use to create photons so that you can illuminate an area. Mm-hmm. And before light bulbs, you didn't really have that option unless you set something on fire. 
Uh, and there's a limited number of things we can set on fire before we set ourselves on fire or we run out of stuff that is flammable. So it was a good idea to try and develop something that could create light in another way. Now, uh, how do we know about, no, how, what is the principle upon which light bulbs work? Well, again, if you excite an atom and you push those electrons out, when the electrons come back in, they emit photons. If you give enough energy to an object, then you can emit enough uh, uh, photons for it to be within the, depending upon the nature of that material, for it to be within the visible spectrum, uh, for it to be perceptible. Because even if it's in the visible uh, spectrum, if the energy is not great enough, you won't be able to see it. And we're all emitting energy all the time. Like humans are emitting infrared energy all the time. And if you had an infrared camera, you'd be able to see it, even in a perfectly dark room. You'd look through the infrared camera, look at a person. You would see light uh, as interpreted by the sensor in that camera and converted to visible light for us to see. You would be able to see that person because they're emitting that infrared light. Well, we may even, depending on what, what, depending on the material, it may even be emitting visible light, but it might be emitting at, at levels so low as to be imperceptible to humans. Ah. So if you add more energy, you can boost that and actually see the visible light. Uh, and this can happen with things like solid materials. And there was a fellow uh, named John William Draper, who in 1847 demonstrated that solid materials, almost all of them, will glow once they reach a temperature of 798 Kelvin. Kelvin's a scientific scale for temperatures. Uh, Kelvin is what we have uh, when you get to zero Kelvin. Mm-hmm. That's as that's as cold as you can get. It actually refers to molecular movement. And at zero Kelvin, there is no molecular movement. So that's like the the deepest depths of space where there's nothing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you wanted to convert that into degrees that we're more familiar with, most of us anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it would be about 525 degrees Celsius or 977 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, solid materials will start to glow. We call it the Draper point. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to have a object glow at a uh, at, a, at an intensity bright enough for it to illuminate, say, a room, you will have to put in more energy than that, right? Because this, this is talking about they start to glow, but that doesn't mean that they're yeah. glowing so brightly as to illuminate an entire room. Yeah, that's where it starts. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, you, you've probably seen this. If you've ever seen a blacksmith work, then, you know, the blacksmith might be heating up iron and when they take that out, it's glowing red mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or a glass blower or lava. You know, there's lots of stuff that <laughs> tends to lava. lava. It's not all man-made. Uh, but there's lots of stuff out there that, um, that, that demonstrates this. So that's the principle. But, but the idea behind an electric light source actually predates Draper's discovery. Really? Yes. Back in, well, the early 1800s, I've seen, I've seen reports from 1806 all the way up to 1809. There's some discrepancies there. But a, an English chemist and inventor named Sir Humphrey Davy, Named Humphrey Davy, he was designated a knight, so that's the sir. Uh, he connected a battery to a strip of charcoal. 
and he used the electricity to actually heat up the charcoal to the point where it started to glow, which created, technically, the first electric arc lamp. Uh, this was not a, um, a viable means of illumination, as it was hard to do. It required a lot of energy. The battery drained really quickly. The carbon burned at such a, or, you know, it, it, it got so hot as to be incredibly dangerous for, uh, say, I don't know, a typical house. Um, so it was not something that was going to immediately be a- adopted into every household, but it was proving a, a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, by the way, Sir Humphrey Davy did go on to invent many things, including the Davy lamp, which was not an electrical lamp. It was a gas lamp. But it was a gas lamp that had a mesh screen that would surround the flame mm-hmm. so that miners – uh, meaning people who mine the earth, not people who are underage. Miners <laughs> could take the lamps, what? although depending in England at that point in time, the two may have been the same. The, hey, our history has not always been a nice one. The, the miners could take a lamp uh, down below the ground, and even if they encountered a pocket of gas, the mesh would actually, this fine mesh would prevent the gas and the flame from making friends and becoming a big boom. Right. Very important for miners. Yes. Of both types. So the, uh, he did invent that. Again, not electrical, but I thought it was an interesting aside. Moving ahead, back in, uh, 1841, uh, Frederick de Moylens, and I'm sure I have completely mispronounced his name, and I apologize profusely for that. Another Englishman. Maybe he'll write in. Yeah, could be. He patented a light bulb. In 1841, and this one was comprised of a glass case and a burner, or burners actually made of carbon, and uh, inexpensive material you may know as platinum. Ah, yeah, you thought that LED light bulbs were expensive, so uh, he he patented that design. Uh, again, not really practical for uh, for everyday or even industrial use. Uh, 1845. An American inventor named J.W. Starr received a patent for a light bulb that used a carbon burner. Uh, and then the next few decades were spent among inventors trying to find a way to perfect the discoveries these earlier inventors had found so that you could create a, a light bulb that made sense, mm-hmm. that, that was efficient, that could light well, that was not going to be prohibitively expensive. And uh, there are two names in particular – that pop up all the time, uh, one of them being probably the most famous uh, connected to the light bulb, which is Thomas Edison. Yes. It's funny. As we're recording this, we are rapidly approaching the 133rd anniversary of the first test of Edison's incandescent light bulb. Yeah. Now, it is important to note Edison was not the person who invented the light bulb. He was not even the person to invent the incandescent light bulb, but he was someone who perfected that design and made it viable as a uh, an actual product. Yeah. Now it's it's important to note um, that these these early light bulbs, uh, you know, not only were homes not really wired. Actually, the light bulb, I would argue, based on my research, the uh, uh, over the past, you know, the past times that we've done tech stuff, we've talked about Edison and Tesla and all these. Uh, the light bulb actually was sort of the key to getting homes wired for electricity in oh, the first sure. place. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you, and it made sense because suddenly you had households that could be uh, safely, with air quotes around that, lit 
after dark and extend the useful uh, time a, a human being could get stuff done because otherwise when night fell, we might as well just go to bed because <laughs> it was going to be pretty dark. Well, you know, early to bed and early to rise, Yeah, well, as they say. You know, early to bed, early to rise because otherwise you're barking your shin on the coffee table. Well, yeah, that that's true. Well, gas lamps uh, were very, very popular. Yeah. Uh, but they were, I mean, in addition to being obviously inherently somewhat dangerous. Right. Um, and oil lamps. Uh, but they were um, uh, smoky. Yep. Um, they were dirty. Yep. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure they, they probably didn't smell all that great. Um, but the problem with these early light bulbs is that they weren't, very practical. It's like, hey, look, I got – oh. Yeah. The, well, so much for that one. Can we try a, another one? There was another uh, inventor, an Englishman, yeah. another Englishman named Sir Joseph Swan. Ah, yes. Who was working on light bulbs around the same time as Edison. And Swan's bulb used carbonized paper as the burner, which worked pretty well except that it didn't last terribly long. Yeah. And in fact, this was a problem that a lot of light bulb – uh, researchers were encountering, they, including Edison, including Edison. The first problem was, all right, well, we've we found uh, that if you if you run enough electricity through some sort of object, you can heat it up enough so that it begins to glow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that uh, item is exposed to oxygen, then it will burn. So even if you found a material that does not melt at a high temperature, it would burn. It would combust at a high enough temperature because it'd be, you know, it would be adjacent to oxygen, which, you know, that that's part of the 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 fuel you need, you know, in order to have a fire. Um, so the you had to close it off from oxygen, which is why there were these these vacuum tubes. Essentially, is what they created these vacuum uh, uh, containers, um, but. Uh, once they got through that, they had to find what's the right material to use. Actually, what Edison ended up using at first was bamboo. Yep. He took Japanese bamboo and uh, carbonized it and created a filament. And in this case, what a filament is, is this really long, 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 long strip of material that is then coiled so that you can decrease the space that it needs to um, to fit into whatever you want to put it in. So it's got a lot of surface area. It's thin. The resistance is high. A resistance in electricity is the the material's resistance to electrons flowing through it freely. The more resistance there is in general, okay, you've got greater resistance, you have greater heat. Well, the secret to the light here is the amount of heat that's being generated. That's the energy mm-hmm. that is creating this whole system of, of electrons being pushed out, and then when they start coming back in, the photons are being uh, let out. So let the photons, let the photons out. out. Yeah, who let the photons out? That was uh, Edison and Swan, as it turns out. Um, it's interesting because then Edison, Edison ended up hiring what his first, his first uh, light bulb design used a temperature-controlled switch to try and keep the uh, material at the right temperature so that it would the light bulb would remain lit longer because that was an early problem with these light bulbs is that their their utility was low because they couldn't mm-hmm. you couldn't burn them mm-hmm. for very long yeah uh, but this was a problem because the the temperature control, controlled switch once a certain temperature was hit it would switch off right the mm-hmm. light would go off yeah and so it started creating this flickering problem and made the bulb practically unusable so he then hired a physicist from Princeton named Francis Upton who led 
Edison's research team working on light bulbs to start practicing with other stuff. That's when they came upon the idea of using the bamboo as a filament. Um, Swan and Edison ended up battling each other. Edison ended up uh, taking uh, patent lawsuits against Swan, but then ultimately the two of them formed a partnership together and they created the Edison Swan United Company. Teamwork. Teamwork. Um, yeah, it, just so that, just so you guys know, patent wars are not a new thing. Oh no, not, <laughs> not in the least. Um, yeah, it's funny. While, uh, while carbonized bamboo sounds like a, an ingredient for a hipster sandwich. Yeah. Um, it did, uh, have the ability to burn for more than 1200 hours, which, you know, back in that time, that was pretty nice for a, for a light bulb. Yeah. And, uh, this served as the basis for what future light bulbs would be. And then we ended up shifting to a different type of filament, but we'll get into that in a second. So let's talk about the basic anatomy of an incandescent light bulb. And don't worry, fluorescent and LED fans, we're going to get to you too. You just sit tight. <laughs> so the incandescent bulb, you've got yes. two contacts, two, two electrical contacts on this, on a typical, uh, incandescent bulb. One of them is at the very end of the bulb. That's the the ba- at the base of the bulb. Yes. And the other is in the uh, the actual treads that you screw into your um, uh, light bulb socket. Yeah. Uh, actually, it usually has a squeaky noise, which has that perfect pitch to give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. It's like the fingernails on the chalkboard type thing. It's like almost every single light bulb in my house makes that noise, and so it's a physically. <laughs> demanding task for me because, well, I guess psychologically really more than physically because right. I, I suffer well, trauma. One, one follows the other right. because you start to unscrew. How many how many Jonathans does it take to screw, screw in a light bulb? bulb? Yeah, well, oh. it, after the first one, it takes a few others to calm them down. Yeah, I, uh, Earplugs. I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm just afraid of changing light bulbs. So uh, that's not really true. I just don't like doing it. But anyway, these metal contacts are what create the uh, the the circuit. Right, yeah. so that the circuit's complete when these two contacts are are uh, in contact with the rest of the electrical system. Three, two, one. Um, right. The contacts are attached to uh, some wires, and those wires are attached to the uh, the the filament. Now, in this case, the filament's no longer bamboo for your typical incandescent bulb. It's usually tungsten, and the reason why it's Tungsten is a couple different reasons. Uh, one is that the melting temperature of tungsten is really high. Mm-hmm. So you can heat tungsten up quite a bit and not worry about it being um, uh, melting away. That That is obviously another issue with light bulbs, right? You heat up materials. Some material is going to melt, and it might melt before you hit that draper point, which would be bad because mm-hmm. you wouldn't get any light out of it. You would just get a, you know, a, a glass cylinder of hot, Molten Sludge. Um, Hot Molten Sludge would be a great name for a band. It, it is, uh, It is, however, very thin. Uh, yes. The filament is very thin, as anyone who has uh, smacked a light bulb hard enough to break the filament but not hard enough to break the glass knows. Yeah. That's really annoying. That's another really annoying thing about changing light bulbs. Like, oh. oh, man, did I? Oh, yeah. Just yeah. ruined a perfectly good light bulb. So – yeah, the, it's very thin. Again, that's to increase resistance. Yep. Uh, that's another thing is that a a uh, a copper wire, 
for example, mm-hmm. the the greater the diameter of a copper wire, the lower the resistance. Yeah. So if you have a very uh, uh, thin copper wire, the resistance is greater. That means it's going to also generate more heat as a result. Well, this tungsten, same thing. I mean, the same principle applies across all materials. Uh, tungsten uh, filament is very, very, very thin. It's actually coiled twice. Mm-hmm. The first coil is done to decrease its, you know, the the length, and then after you've coiled it once, you coil it a second time around uh, these these support wires, and uh, that helps when the the tungsten heats up, it starts to generate or you know give off these photons. Uh, it helps. Um, uh, concentrate that light so that mm-hmm. you have enough for it to be useful because again you want to give enough energy there for you to have visible light that you can actually you know, see stuff by but uh, you don't want to have to pour in more energy than was necessary and we should point out incandescent bulbs not terribly efficient no we think about heat being a uh, uh, a wasted form of energy in this case right and how hot an incandescent bulb gets and it's also giving out photons outside the range of visible uh, light. Yeah. So you're getting, you know, infrared light and maybe even ultraviolet light from from these light bulbs. Well, that that means that again, it's a drop in efficiency. I mean, yeah, it's giving off light, but we can't see it, so it doesn't do us any good. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not in a normal application anyway, you know. Uh if you were doing something that required infrared or ultraviolet light, then sure, although there are better ways of doing that than using a regular incandescent light bulb. Yeah, I mean, you you could you could even cook brownies with it. Yes, which is with an easy bake oven. It's funny because I, I don't think people, not everyone, realizes this. It's not like a secret, but um, the the older easy bake ovens, especially, they're they're essentially using the heat from a light bulb to cook, uh, you know, very simple uh, cakes and brownies and things like that. Right now, the you know you might ask, well, what's inside a light bulb besides all this stuff? There's actually a gas that's inside most incandescent light bulbs, and it's usually argon, which is an uh, it's an inert gas, meaning it does not react to other stuff. <laughs> uh, hey, argon gas! Yeah. There's a tornado outside. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> like oh, you never do anything. No, the the you want it to be inert because uh, obviously, like something like oxygen, then the tungsten would start to burn. And yeah, it would dramatically decrease the life uh, lifespan of your average light bulb. Yeah, so they so, they pump the oxygen, they pump air out of the glass globe and fill it with argon gas. Yep, and so you might say, well, why why not just have a vacuum instead of argon gas? The reason for that is that uh, at that high temperature, you have another problem besides combustion. Even if you don't have oxygen, the uh-huh. other problem is evaporation. Uh, atoms from the tungsten will actually evaporate off the filament because of those high temperatures. Mm-hmm. And over time, that means that you're losing, you know, every time you're using that light bulb, you're losing tungsten. Yes. Uh, with the old it's light thinner bulbs. Thinner and thinner. Yeah. And with the old light bulbs, you would actually have the tungsten start to evaporate away and coat the inside of the light bulb. So the light bulb would get more and more dim, both because there was less filament to light and because all, all the filament that was gone is now coating the inside of the light bulb, making it darker. Mm-hmm. So uh, by using argon, what it actually acts as is sort of a sort of a barrier. These atoms from tungsten will come off the, the filament, bump into a uh, an argon atom, and then because argon's inert, it's not going to act with that that um, uh, energy. Or that that particle, rather, mm-hmm. the particle then returns to the strip of tungsten. 
Um, so it acts as kind of a cushion. It's just pushing the the atoms back to the tungsten, keeping that filament last to last longer. Uh, very important. And so that's the basic premise behind these incandescent bulbs. They, uh, you know, they they get to a pretty hot temperature. We're talking around 2,200 degrees Celsius or 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, you want to put out enough visible light for it to be useful. Now, that all depends on the wattage of the bulb. What? Yeah. Which, generally speaking, you can think of as brightness. Um, it's it's kind of uh, – uh, or, or really – you can think of it as brightness or how hot that tungsten's getting inside the light bulb. Yeah. Uh, that's what that – kind of translates into. Uh, and uh, interesting, we have an article on the site, How Light Bulbs Work at mm-hmm. HowStuffWorks.com. Great article, great illustrations, a fun read. I mean, I, I really do yeah, mean that. It's it actually, it's good. you would think it's an article about light bulbs, but it really is a fun read. And one of my favorite uh, uh, facts in this is that a typical 60-watt bulb has a tungsten filament that is six and a half feet or two meters long and one hundredth of an inch thick. I don't have the centimeters for that. Sorry. But it's, you know, six and a half feet long or two meters. And if you were to completely uncoil that filament, however, once it's all double coiled, it's in a space that's shorter than, you know, the tip of your pinky finger. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, wow, that's, to go from six and a half feet to that is pretty impressive, mm-hmm. you know. And again, that's packing all that material in so it can give off enough light for it to be useful. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, do you uh, do you happen to know how three-way light bulbs work? I do not actually. As a matter of fact, we have another very very short article on uh, how three-way light bulbs work, and it they also have two filaments. Um, it's it's very interesting. Now the the socket has to accommodate that. Yeah, because uh, it, it has to do also with the connection uh, on the outside. But essentially, what happens is the the socket is you know through a switch, uh, providing instructions on which of the two filaments to light. So for the first on switch, if you've ever used a three way light, you know that the first one is the lowest setting, mm-hmm. uses the the least amount of electricity. Well, the one filament that is designed for that lower setting comes on uh, when you. Click the switch again. That provides instructions for the second filament, but only the second filament to come on. And then the third, the two team up. I see. So that way and you then get the, the, the next settings the, off. Gotcha. You get these the sum total of light coming from the bulb. Which is, if you'll pardon the pun, a brilliant way to do that because it's very simple. Shiny. So moving on. Uh, that's a little just a side little and, firefly reference for you guys out there. And uh, of course, you can achieve different effects too with the kind of glass. You might be wondering, you know, sure. the, the, what the the natural lighting or the what does the blue what does the blue one do? Well, yeah. it's it's just uh, diffusing the uh, photons given off by the the tungsten inside the light bulb a little bit differently. Right, and and I should point Pretty out neat. that depending upon the material you're using, that will determine what kind of light is given off. Right, so tungsten's giving off this light. Uh, partially because of the fact that it's tungsten. But other materials give off different kinds of light, different colors of light along or, or essentially lights that are at different wavelengths, right? So different parts of the spectrum, sometimes visible, sometimes not. Uh, this is used in chemistry. It's used in astronomy. It's used in uh, lots of different areas of physics, not just in creating light bulbs or, you know, heating stuff up until it glows. 
but that kind of that's kind of the the full discussion on incandescent bulbs. But those aren't the only kind of bulbs we have. Mm-hmm. We also have fluorescent bulbs. Ah, uh, yes. Um, you might say, well, you know, uh, Edison and later the company that he was directly slash indirectly the founder of, General Electric, you know, perfected the the incandescent light bulb, and uh, uh, you know, you would think that they would be very upset that the fluorescent came out. Well, not really, because as we touched on on our famous or infamous GE series, how how uh, the, the famous. <laughs> That's more than That's more famous. A uh, series on GE. GE was actually in development of the fluorescent light bulb. Yeah. So fluorescent light bulbs use a different method of generating light. So you're not, you don't have that physical filament inside a fluorescent bulb. Mm-hmm. Instead, what you have is a sealed glass tube. By the way, we also have how fluorescent lamps work. Mm-hmm. at HowStuffWorks.com. So again, uh, you should read that if you're interested to learn all the physics involved in this. But in general, you've got a sealed glass tube and not the animal that Chris was alluding to earlier. It's just completely sealed. Uh, uh, the tube has inside it some mercury. And there's also an inert gas like, again, argon. Uh, the inside of this glass tube is coated with a powder that's phosphorus. Now, phosphorus means that when light strikes it, it gives off light. So that sounds like it could be totally useless, except we're talking about light within the entire spectrum. So even if if you have a, a certain kind of phosphor, it will... Uh, if you were to hit that phosphor with light that's outside the visible spectrum, for example, ultraviolet light, mm-hmm. and then that phosphor actually emits visible light, that becomes useful because you can either look at stuff that is in the presence of uh, light that's otherwise outside our our field of vision, or you can create something like a fluorescent light bulb that uses light outside of our vision to create light that's inside our vision. The mm-hmm. way this works is you've got the electrodes at either end of this tube uh, that uh, are wired to some sort of circuit. Now, the circuit, once we turn that on, starts to introduce uh, free-flowing electrons into the gas. Now, this is different from the filament approach because then you have uh, electrons running through a material directly, right? Mm -hmm. Just like you would a wire in a circuit. I mean, that's essentially what it is. With this, it's free-flowing electrons going through... Uh, uh, the gas, in this case, argon. Uh, it takes a little while for these electrons to be introduced into this, this tube, which is why when you turn on most fluorescent light bulbs, there's this little flickering moment while it's coming on. Yeah. Because the, cause again, the, the, it has to introduce the, uh, ele- the free flowing electrons for this to work. So, uh, once these electrons with considerable voltage are introduced, uh, the energy starts to change some of the mercury that's in that tube from liquid to gas. Now, again, when we're introducing electricity into or you know energy into an atom, it's exciting those electrons, pushing them out of their orbitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the electrons start to come back down to their normal orbital, they'll give off photons. With the case of mercury, you're talking about uh, light photons that are in the ultraviolet wavelength range. So again, you can you're exciting the mercury and it's giving off ultraviolet light. 
we can't see ultraviolet light, unaided anyway. We're, we're incapable of seeing light at that wavelength. But by coating the inside of that tube with phosphors that are able to absorb ultraviolet light and then emit light in the visible spectrum, mm-hmm. we can use that ultraviolet light to give us light we can see indirectly. Right. We have this intermediary step with the phosphors. So the mercury starts to go from liquid to gas, gives off these ultraviolet photons. The ultraviolet photons hit the phosphors. The phosphors absorb the ultraviolet light and emit light in the visible spectrum. And voila, or viola if you prefer, we have ourselves a fluorescent light bulb. By the way, if you have a black light, you essentially have a fluorescent bulb that does not have those phosphors necessarily on the inside because it's just emitting the ultraviolet light directly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can have those wicked uh, band posters light up in pretty colors. Yeah. All in all, you're just another brick in the wall. Nice. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the essential way that fluorescents work. And this is also why, because they contain mercury, why they are so uh, dangerous or potentially dangerous because mercury is toxic. And if you were to say, I don't know, drop a pallet of fluorescent light bulbs in a warehouse, you could have a, a, a potentially dangerous situation on your hands because you could you know, very much have enough mercury there to suffer mercury poisoning. Yeah, it's um, it's in a way sort of amusing that uh, so many of my friends remember busting fluorescent light bulbs. Uh, fondly because they make a, they make a loud noise. Holy, I had one, I, I was in a bookstore once when, uh, and I was just perusing some books. So I'm very much focused on what I'm doing. Oh yeah. When the employee behind me who was trying to change out a fluorescent bulb accidentally dropped the one in her hands, uh, from a ladder and it landed directly behind me and I thought I had just been hit by a shotgun. Okay. <laughs> Turned out I wasn't. Well, and and if and at that time it wasn't uh, popular knowledge. I, w- I probably shouldn't say common knowledge, but popular knowledge. People just didn't know uh, that there was mercury in there. Now, I mean, admittedly, there's not a uh, a boatload of mercury in there, but you know, it could it could be something uh, serious. Yep. And uh, that's why when your fluorescent lights burn out, it's a good idea to find someone who can take it and recycle that, not only uh, for safety reasons, but also because, you know, they can recover some of that material. Now, uh, when you're talking about the uh, fluorescent light tubes, uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, you've got the uh, the tube of gas with the caps on the end and you plug it into the the, uh, the light fixture. To have it work. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's other stuff underneath that um, that you may not necessarily see. It's it's covered up by the fixture. Um, one of the the most important parts, I would argue, is the ballast, yes. which is a, a type of transformer um, that uh, basically ups the electricity to make it work better with the uh, fluorescent light. Because again, you have to introduce those ions, which is not necessarily easy to do, especially since you've got an inert gas in there. So if you've ever looked at a compact fluorescent light or curly bulb, as I like to call them, mm-hmm. um, because I like to do that, um, and wondered what the heck the big honkin' base is that you have to screw into a regular light fixture, that's where the ballast is. The ballast is built into the base of that uh, that fixture, um, which is why it may or may not fit into that incandescent uh, – that, that fixture that you bought that would uh, – 
allow you to use a um, a typical incandescent bulb. Now, they say uh, in some cases that you should not use those because they do generate heat and that can uh, make the ballast overheat, uh, cause a short circuit and uh, possibly fire. You know, it, it depends on what kind of fixture you have. So keep an eye on that. But if you've wondered what that what that situation is, um, it's built into the ballast. And the ballast is also, in that case, what controls the three-way. There are some three-way fluorescent, compact fluorescent lights. Um, the ballast is what uh, uh, makes that possible because it, it can uh, control the uh, amount of electricity going into the tube. Yeah, it's also important to point out that another big difference between using free electrons moving through a gas, uh, essentially you're talking about an ionized gas or plasma, uh, but no, if you're using free electrons moving through a gas, it, it does behave differently than it would if those electrons were moving through a wire. Uh, now with a wire, you know, you have the, the resistance is dependent upon the, the composition and the size of the wire. Uh-huh. In a, in gas discharge, which is, uh, in the terms of this, not something that's gross, is, uh, uh, it's, the resistance actually, um, decreases due to current. So when you've got a current going, the resistance begins to decrease through this gas. That's more electrons and ions start to flow through. They bump into more atoms. It frees up more electrons, creates more charged particles. So the resistance is uh, is constantly decreasing as long as that current's on. And that can be a problem. If that continues for too long, it'll blow out the electrical components of the the, the entire system. So that's another reason why these ballasts are important. They are little safety features that control that so that the, uh, the current doesn't continue indefinitely. It stops briefly, but not so briefly as to make the light bulb turn off, uh, or at least if it's turning off, it's turning off at a rate so fast that we can't really detect it. Uh, you may have noticed, you know, light bulbs that, uh, fluorescent bulbs that flicker. Like even when they're on, they're yeah. just they're just flickering, and that's generally speaking, that's the ballast that is yep. trying to control this. And uh, you're talking about alternating currents. The current's running essentially one way and then another way, so it's doing it. You know, and the ballast is working for both directions of of current. Uh, and uh, in some of the older bulbs, the system was not controlled very well. Like they might have used a magnetic ballast which has a, a slightly slower reaction time than current ballasts that are uh that are usually based on circuitry. So those older ballasts, you know, it meant that if you had a fluorescent bulb turned on, uh, it might give you that flickering look and you might feel like your workplace is the same one that was in the documentary Joe versus the volcano. And you'll think you have a brain cloud. That's right. You have a brain cloud. Well, and then that- you have to go to this volcano uh, and encounter three different versions of the same actress. <laughs> and I was, uh, see, I, I was working on a joke about how you, when you were flying in your hot air balloon and you needed to go higher, you would throw out the fluorescent light uh, fixtures because, you know, the kind of throw the ballasts overboard. Ironically enough, that's somewhat true. I've changed a ballast out of my fluorescent light fixture in my kitchen and they're heavy. Are they? Yeah, it's like a brick. Anyway. Well, we should probably move on to the third type of light bulb I wanted to talk about, the LED. Actually, if you look at our uh, 
believe it or not, there's an article on HowStuffWorks.com about light-emitting diodes. Yeah, we have articles on all of this, which made this podcast way easy to research. Yes, yes. But it, the funny thing is, if you look at the diagram, the, the cross-section that our artists have put together of a light-emitting diode, it sort of, in a way, resembles an incandescent light bulb because uh, it is a diode inside a casing. Yeah. Uh, now, in this case, the the light emitting exactly diode, the same. right? The light emitting diode is a is a type of semiconductor. Mm-hmm. Actually, in a way, it's the the simplest semiconductor there is. A, a diode in general, not just a light emitting diode, but a diode in general is a semiconductor, and um, yeah, it's, it, it conducts electricity, but not as completely as it could. Right. It, essentially, it's a semiconductor. It has a varying ability to conduct electricity. Yeah. So sometimes it can act like an insulator. Sometimes as a conductor. It all depends on this stuff. Uh, generally speaking, um, it gives you control. Yeah. What what you have is you've got a semiconductor with two different types of material, and it tends we tend to call it n-type material and p-type material. So the n-type material has extra negatively charged particles. Mm-hmm. So you it, it has a negative charge overall. Right. Then the p-type material, I think you can see where this is going, has extra positively charged particles. Are you sure? Yes, I'm positive. Not just sure, I'm positive. Uh, so you can think of the n-type material as having an excess of electrons. The p-type material has what we call holes. Mm-hmm. These are places where the electrons could go. Now, electrons definitely want to get over to the positively charged holes. They, they want to move to those holes because, as we know, uh, when you're talking about charges, opposites attract. John. Marsha. Yes, in, in subatomic particle form. So you've got, uh, the negative and the positive, uh, uh materials, and they're kind of smushed together in a, in a diode. So you've, you've bond together the n-type material to the p-type material. So you've got the, uh, the negatively charged and the positively charged, uh, bonded together, and there's an electrode attached to each end. So mm-hmm. the n-type has an electrode attached, the p-type has an electrode attached. Now, if you don't apply any voltage across this diode, the electrons from the n-type material fill up the holes in the p-type material, and it creates what is called a depletion zone. Mm-hmm. And in the depletion zone, the semiconductor becomes an insulator. You know, you've you've got those extra electrons have filled up the holes that were on the positively side charge side and you've reached sort of a, a neutral ground, right? Mm-hmm. So depletion zone is that neutral ground. There are no free electrons or empty spaces, so it's just kind of there. But if you want to get rid of that depletion zone, then you need to push electrons across, moving from the n-type area toward the p-type area. And then uh, to do that, you just uh, connect the the n-type side of the diode to the negative end of a circuit, mm-hmm. and the p-type side to the positive end. And the free electrons in the n-type material are repelled by the negative side because, again, you know, a like charge repels like. Yes. They're drawn to the positive end, and you uh, then complete the the circuit, and you get this um, you get this electron movement. If you tried to go the other way, it wouldn't work because the negatively charged particles going into the positive end would just fill up the holes, and then it would stop. Right. So. A diode is kind of like a one-way street in electronics. If you ha- hook up a diode, uh, current can only flow in one direction, uh-huh. and it will not flow the other way. So, if you even if you reversed the uh, the current, it would not complete the circuit if it went 
against the diode. Mm-hmm. Reversing the polarity just won't work, Captain. <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts. Yeah. So, so that's your basic LED. But a visible light-emitting diode are made up of materials that create a, a wide gap between where the hole is and where the electrons are, so that when the electrons move through, they do emit, they, they give off photons. Because mm-hmm. again, we're talking about when electrons are moving down through the orbitals, uh, you know, you, you've given them enough energy for them to, uh, to move out of their normal orbitals. Mm-hmm. Once they move down, they give off light. Well, the greater that gap is, the more light they give off. So if you create, uh, a visible light emitting diode and you, use these materials that create these wider gaps between the conduction band and the lower orbitals of uh, the electrons, that gap is what allows the electrons to give off light. Mm-hmm. And in general, these LEDs tend to look, if you look at a, a single LED, they tend to look like a miniature light bulb, like Chris yeah. was saying. Uh, now, there's no filament in there because, again, you're just, what all you're doing is you're allowing those electrons to move in those, those um, orbitals and that's what's giving off the photons. And these little light bulbs tend to be shaped in such a way that it guides the light that's emitted in a very particular direction. So yes. that way it's a very concentrated light. Yeah. So if you see a, an LED light fixture, and this could be, you know, a, an LED light bulb or, uh, on, on the back of cars, I've seen a lot of, um, uh, taillights in recent cars that use LEDs. And you can tell because it will be a group of them together. Um, and so that looks like there are lots of little tiny dots of light in a pattern, you know, maybe a, um, a series of concentric circle yeah. type things or, or, you know, some other kind of thing. Um, and it's, uh, you can, you can tell that it's an LED light specifically because you can see the little dots. Right. But together, when they work together like that, they can be very bright. I have a couple LED flashlights, as a matter of fact, um, that, you know, you, it's like, hey, is this thing work? Oh, golly. You know. Yeah. Um, however, got, they're very efficient. Yes, yes. I've got a couple of LED lights in my house, actually. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of light fixtures that were specifically designed to work with LED lights. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, they are incredibly efficient, particularly compared to incandescence and even fluorescence. But we didn't really mention it, but fluorescent lights are more efficient than incandescent light bulbs. Yes. They last longer. They use less energy to create light. They don't they don't lose as much energy in producing uh, heat. Yes, I was so, going to point that out too. Yeah, so they they don't heat up as hot as an incandescent bulb. That's not saying that a fluorescent bulb is going to be cool to the touch. Right. It's just not going to be as hot as an incandescent bulb is. LED is even more efficient. Uh, it has a a much higher luminous efficacy, if you will, as we say in our article on LEDs. Watch your language. I'm sorry. Um, but they talked about how in our article they they mention a specific type of LED light bulb. In this case, it was the Sewell's Evo Lux LED bulb, which produces seventy six point nine lumens per watt, which is essentially how bright this is, dependent upon how much energy you're putting into it. Whereas an incandescent bulb is seventeen lumens per watt. Mm-hmm. So seventy six point nine versus seventeen. It shows that the efficiency of the LED is far greater than that of the incandescent bulb. And the LED lifetime can be around 50,000 hours. So compare that to a couple of thousand hours for a typical incandescent bulb, and that's a big difference. Now, LED light bulbs do tend to be much more expensive 
oh, yeah. than incandescent or fluorescent bulbs. However, if you measure that across the lifetime of the bulb and you factor in things like uh, energy savings, uh, they, on the long term, can be a good investment. However, the upfront cost is still much higher, so that can be a, a barrier for a lot of people. Yes. The cost has been decreasing uh, quite a bit since, well, over the last decade or so, uh, since semiconductor material has become much more uh, cost-effective. Mm-hmm. Because when these first came out, semiconductor material was a precious commodity. It was not something that was mass-produced. It was not something that you could easily get your hands on, and so it was much more expensive. Mm-hmm. But just as Gordon Moore predicted, way back in the 60s, the manufacturing processes would mean that costs would come down, efficiencies go up, and as a result – we're able to get more efficient products. Now, he was talking specifically about integrated circuits, but as it turns out, that kind of applies to lots of stuff. Absolutely. doesn't necessarily mean that the light bulbs we'll have next year will be twice as bright as the ones we have this year, so the analogy doesn't continue all the way there. Right. But it's still, I think, semi-applicable. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you can see the differences between these these approaches Uh Ultimately, it's all about, again, exciting atoms. And once those atoms get excited, they just light up, just like Chris does That's... whenever I talk about Inner Space, his favorite movie. Ooh. <laughs> his face is lighting up right now, people. If you could call it that. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. They're, they're so excited and they just can't hide it. That's true. They're about to lose control. They think they like it. They think. All right. So uh, that wraps up, I think, this discussion. Unless you have anything else you want to add to light bulbs? Nope. All right. Let's sign off. You guys can switch off the lights now. We're going to wrap this up. You guys, if you have any topics you would like us to tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, shoot us an email. That address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. You can find us there with the handle techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 